0: Welcome to the Cornerstones of Healthy Food Systems, sharing reflections on the environmental, agricultural, social, and nutritional factors that will form the foundation of healthy food systems and healthy economies. Now your host, Dr. Mary Lucero. Hey there, thank you for joining me here today for Episode 7, which is Part 2 of What Farmers and Gardeners Need to Know About Soil Testing. In our last episode, you learned that you can determine a lot about your soil by observing the color, the texture, the biological diversity, and even the aroma of your soil without any special equipment. With experience, you can rely on these on-site observations to consistently produce average quality fruits, vegetables, and forages. And you can improve on your in-house analysis by using a microscope to examine your soil microorganisms. But to really knock it out of the water and make sure that the fruits and vegetables you're producing have optimal nutrient density, you really need to add soil chemistry testing from time to time just to ensure the nutrients you need are actually there. We also talked about how to choose a certified soil testing lab and we jump just a little bit into how to interpret the information on your lab test by talking about what to do with the pH reading. Your lab test results are going to have many other measurements as well. And so today we're going to discuss the cation exchange capacity, the organic matter determinations, the base saturation values, and the actual macro and micronutrients that you should be looking for on your soil test. So let's begin by talking about the CEC. CEC is an abbreviation for cation exchange capacity. And the cation exchange capacity is a measurement of how many cations or positively charged ions can bind to the particles your soil contains. It's usually measured in milliequivalents or MEQs. And while CEC values can vary widely based on your soil type, I start to get a little concerned when they drop below 25, and I get real concerned as they drop below 20. These values matter because the majority of the essential mineral nutrients your plants require for healthy growth and metabolism are absorbed by the plant roots as cations. So to put it quite simply, a soil with a high CEC value is capable of holding more nutrients than a soil with a low CEC value. There are a number of ways to visualize this, but when I speak to audiences that aren't familiar with soil structure or soil chemistry, I find it most useful to say that a low CEC soil is about as useful for absorbing nutrients as a silk handkerchief is for catching spilled milk before it runs off your table. As your cation exchange capacity increases, imagine trading that silk handkerchief in for a thick microfiber cloth with high absorbency. That microfiber cloth is going to pick up that spilled milk, much like a high CE soil is going to hold on to nutrient cations. So if you want your soil to be rich in plant-available nutrients, then you want to maintain a high CEC. That said, high is a relative number, because the CEC of your soil can be impacted by a number of variables, including the texture and the organic matter that your soil contains. Fine textured clay soils will have a higher CEC than sandy soils. In fact, a very coarse sand may have a CEC as low as 10. And when you see the CEC drop that low, you have a soil that's really going to be challenging to grow crops on without adding a lot of amendments. As your cation exchange capacity begins to exceed 20 or 25 milliequivalents, your soil starts doing a much better job of holding the nutrients where your plant needs them. But it's important to note that these numbers should be viewed in conjunction with the organic matter percent. organic matter percent is going to be another value that you can get off of your soil test results. You want to view these two together because a heavy clay soil can have a cation exchange capacity above 30, and it can do a great job of holding nutrients. But if your cation exchange capacity is 30, but you don't have any organic matter in the soil, that clay is going to be so hard for air, water, and plant roots to penetrate that they aren't going to be able to benefit from all those nutrients, even though the clay is holding on to them. So I never look at CEC values without also looking at organic matter values. Organic matter may be listed as OM or SOM for soil organic matter. And this is a measurement of all the plant, animal, or microbially derived substances that are in your soil. This can include newly decayed leaves and straw and crop residues. Or it can include ancient organic matter, things like humic acids and biochars. While clay can raise your cation exchange capacity to about 30 milliequivalents, organic matter can easily build it up to 50 or even 100. Now, I said earlier that I get concerned when the CEC drops below 25, and that's because a low CEC makes your soil more fragile. You can produce a crop with a CEC of 20, but that crop is going to be more susceptible to stressors like heat, drought, pests, or disease. Because a low CEC soil is not holding on to nutrients, if you see CEC values of 20 and below, you probably want to spread your nutrient applications out over the growing season, and you probably want to rely more on foliar sprays than on nutrients you apply to the soil. This way, your plant can absorb the nutrients directly. Now, a logical management question to ask becomes, how would you increase a low cation exchange capacity? And the most broad and general answer I can provide to that question is that you're going to want to build your soil organic matter. Seriously, listeners who grow plants in organically rich soils are probably laughing at the CEC values I'm describing here because they might be seeing numbers closer to 100 milliequivalents. And so this raises the next question. Can a CEC be too high? And while excessively high CEC values are rare, what can happen as CEC rates get very high is that other soil parameters, like the nutrients you need to add or the pH levels, can become very hard to change. Now I mentioned organic matter in passing, but it's worth noting that the percent organic matter is of equal importance. I encourage most of the growers I work with to strive for 5% organic matter, noting that 3% is an important threshold point. Because once you reach that level of 3% or more organic matter, you have enough food in your soil for microorganisms to convert your soil from a chemically driven growing system to a biological system. So cation exchange capacities above 25% and organic matter percentages between 3 and 5 are good ballpark targets to strive for. Keep in mind that local conditions, crop type, and management goals will influence these numbers considerably. So it's worth consulting with local experts who know your crop and your soils as you learn how to optimize your growing conditions. Your soil report may also contain values for a base saturation percent. There are some different schools of thought about how these values should be used. Technically, the base saturation of a soil represents the percentage of the cation exchange capacity that is occupied by the most abundant soil cations. These are calcium, magnesium, potassium, and sodium. The values are used by growers who adhere to the concept of soil-mineral balancing. This concept, based on the research of soil scientists like William Albrecht, is highly respected by some agronomists and highly challenged by others for reasons we're going to discuss in future episodes. The last, but certainly not the least valuable category of information that you're going to find on a classic soil chemistry test is going to be a list of all the nutrients that the lab measured from your soil sample and the amounts of each measured nutrient that were detected. It's important for you to know ahead of time which nutrients your lab will measure because not every laboratory measures every essential nutrient. Each nutrient you measure adds to the time and expense associated with your sample. And if you've selected the most basic testing package in your effort to get the best price, you're probably just going to get a report that shows you which macronutrients are present in your sample. But if you're going about the testing because you want to maximize plant health, and crop nutrition, then the micronutrients in your sample are going to be important to monitor as well. And that's because these micronutrients are essential for keeping the plant healthy and for giving the plant what it needs to generate its own pesticides, its own drought resistance, and its own competitive ability to fight off weeds, stress, and disease. What never fails to amaze me is how the list of nutrients analyzed will vary from one lab to the next. We know that plants need at least 17 mineral nutrients to survive, and so I like to find those labs that are analyzing all of these nutrients. Now, let me qualify that a little bit because out of the 17, we're talking about nutrients like carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen that your plants are getting from the air. The carbon can be derived from your organic matter levels. About half of your organic matter is carbon. And the oxygen and hydrogen levels aren't measured because your plant is getting oxygen and hydrogen every time you water it. So take out those three, carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen, and look for a lab that is measuring at least 14 nutrients. These nutrients are generally divided into two major categories, macronutrients and micronutrients. Your macronutrients Include the carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen that I mentioned above, but you're not going to measure those. The remaining macronutrients are nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, sulfur, calcium, and magnesium. And these nutrients are pretty much universally included in laboratory soil tests. If you're using a home test kit, you may only be measuring nitrogen, potassium, and phosphorus. And this is one reason I strongly discourage home test kits for soil analysis. While nitrogen, potassium, and phosphorus are the compounds that are most often added to our soils as fertilizers, they're not necessarily the ones your soil needs the most. So if you're going to invest in a soil test at all, you might as well go the extra mile and pay for a test that includes all the nutrients. Once you have the macronutrients accounted for, you'll also want to look for micronutrients. And these are the nutrients that I see the most variability in offerings from lab to lab. It's hard to find a lab that will measure all of your micronutrients. Look for someone that's going to measure as many of them as possible. Your micronutrients include iron, boron, nickel, chlorine, copper, cobalt, zinc, and molybdenum. While macronutrients act as the building blocks of stems and leaves and roots in your plant, your micronutrients act more like reaction centers in the enzymes that drive metabolism. So if you're missing micronutrients, your plants might not be able to carry out photosynthesis as efficiently, or they might not be able to cooperate as efficiently with nitrogen-fixing bacteria in your soil. Plants missing micronutrients might not be able to produce essential oils that attract beneficial insects and repel pests. And so even though your plant only needs small amounts of these nutrients, It can't function properly without them. Now, the final category of nutrients are the trace elements. Some will argue with me that these aren't really nutrients, and that's okay. But these are pretty much never tested for because they're exorbitantly expensive to test and because there's very little research available to show how much of any one trace element is helpful to your plant. We do know that large amounts of some trace elements can actually be toxic, but we also know that plants grow better when diverse trace elements are available. The trace elements seem to help plants under unique circumstances. Most growers I know deal with trace elements by adding organic matter from mineral-rich natural habitats Good sources of trace elements might include sea kelp or humic substances, biochar. These are all examples of naturally derived soil amendments that are likely to increase the trace element content of your soil. The beauty of adding trace elements from these natural sources is that because they're derived from biological systems, it's very unlikely that you're going to be able to add Too much, and so it's very safe, and you'll see a lot of soil amendments or organic fertilizers that include trace element sources. Now, the optimal levels of each macro and micronutrient contained on your soil lab report will vary depending on your soil, your management type, and your crop. So, it's really best to discuss those with a local expert, an extension agent, a crop consultant somebody who's very familiar with the crop you're growing and familiar with your growing habitat. These experts can help you convert the values reported on your soil test to recommendations for improving your crop and your soil. If avoiding synthetic chemicals is important to you, as it's increasingly important to many of us, then you'll want to let your crop advisor know that up front so that he or she offers natural and organic solutions that meet your nutrient needs. If you'll check the links in the text below this podcast, I've included some places you can go to learn more about interpreting soil tests and building better soils. That's all for today's episode. Thanks for tuning in. You have been listening to the Cornerstones of Healthy Food Systems podcast. This podcast is produced by Endofight Enterprises, LLC. You can subscribe to our podcast at endofight.com or look for us on your favorite podcast directory. Information or products referenced in any episode can be found in the show notes associated with that episode. These notes may contain links to our online courses or services. They may also contain links to affiliate sites. Purchases made through these links help support our efforts to produce this podcast.